Well, thank you for joining us for the third and remaining part in part one of the Daniel 2 presentation. And I'm sure that the first two presentations have perhaps generated questions that you might want further answers to. I don't have all the answers, but I'd be glad to share with you further question, answers that you might find. And I have <clears throat> two websites. Our website up on your screen is www.biblechart.org. You can also contact me with your questions at fpb.seminars at gmail.com. There you will also find where you can buy these charts. We have a Spanish one, an English one coming out in larger format, and we have this very seminar in both English and Spanish that you will also be able to receive shortly on that website. Having said that, let us continue with our focus on this focal point that we've seen the last time, this stone. We notice that every one of these kingdoms here, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, the Kingdom of Glory, and the Kingdom of Grace have five components. You can find this on your chart, panel C, and point four. The first component is a king. Each one of these kingdoms have a king. The Kingdom of Glory has Christ, who serves others and is self-denying. The second component is citizens. The citizens of this stone kingdom are sheep like their shepherd. The laws that govern this kingdom, the royal law, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Every kingdom has a component of terms, terms of citizenship, in other words. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. They also have terms or territory and duration. And this kingdom has the entire earth forever. That's the question Nebuchadnezzar went to sleep with, wondering what's going to happen to his kingdom, which is going to inherit the king, this earth, and how long will it last, his or someone else's? God's answer to him was, the kingdom who is like Christ in character will inherit the earth and stand forever. So what's interesting to notice is that these five components actually shift through the three phases that we will be seeing here shortly. So let's pause here and review. The focus of Daniel 2 is God's stone kingdom with five components. King, Christ, citizens, sheep, laws that govern his kingdom, the Ten Commandments, love God, love man, terms of citizenship, love God, love man, and territory and duration, this earth forever. Now let's turn our focus to the next part of this kingdom. This kingdom comes in three phases. Again, you will find this in your chart, panel C and point five. The first phase we see here in Daniel chapter two, verse 34, and I've broken this down phase by phase. You saw till a stone was cut out without hands, 
smote the image, broke it to pieces, no place found for those pieces. Then this stone filled the whole earth. That's what we have over here. The stone first cut from this mountain, phase one. Then it smites all these kingdoms, breaks them to pieces. A thousand years later, consumes them to ashes, and this kingdom fills the earth. This is what we see in this passage. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom, not be destroyed. Notice that. It's not destroyed. The kingdom not left to other people. But the kingdom shall break in pieces, second coming, consume all these kingdoms, reduced to ashes, and this kingdom shall stand forever. Right here. So notice that the characteristics, two of the characteristics that we'll see in Daniel 7, this kingdom, not destroyed, stands forever. Now sometimes um, people ask, well, is this actually what we find throughout the rest of Scripture? And the answer simply is yes. Let's take a look. Here we have cut means pre-advent judgment. We find this in Daniel 2, verses 34, 44, and 45. In the book of Revelation, we find this for those who love the book of Revelation. 14, 7 says the hour of His judgment has come. In Matthew 22, 11 through 14, we also find the same idea of judgment. The next phase is the smite phase, the second coming. That's in Daniel 2, 34, 44, and 45. Those who like Revelation will find the same event in 14, 14 through 20. The reason I picked this is because these two events, the judgment is followed by the second coming. Then we drop down and see in 19 verses 11 through 21, we pick up the idea of the second coming, which is also mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Then we have a thousand years <clears throat> and the next event occurs. The devil is there according to Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6. That's supplemented by Isaiah 24 verses 19 through 22. Then the consuming phase, the punishment of the wicked, is mentioned in 35 and 44 of Daniel 2, followed by Revelation 27 through 15, and these verses here that show that the root and branches are reduced to ashes. Then we have the third and final phase, the fill phase, the new earth. Daniel 2, 34, 35 and 44. Revelation 21, 22, Isaiah 65, 17, and 25. It's a lot of verses, but it's to show this. How could God fill the new earth until sin is reduced to ashes? And according to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, this happens a thousand years after He comes, and before that, the pre-advent judgment. Study these verses, and you'll find that very fact borne out. Now, someone might ask the question, but I thought I read a quotation in the Spirit of Prophecy, specifically Great Controversy, that seems to say that Christ's second coming establishes this kingdom of stone. Let's take a look at that in context. 
Great Controversy 347, paragraph 1. The throne of glory represents the kingdom of glory. We're talking about this blue line here. This kingdom is referred to in the Savior's words, quote, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all the nations, Matthew 25, 31, and 32. Now notice this quotation. This kingdom is yet future. It is not to be set up until the second coming of Christ. So it appears that quotation alone that this stone kingdom actually does not occur until the second coming. But let's take a look at a companion quotation. This is from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, 108, paragraph 1. The kingdom of God's grace... So here we're seeing this red kingdom, this kingdom of God's grace, is now being set up. As day by day, hearts that have been full of sin and rebellion yield to the sovereignty of His love. But the, notice that word, full. The full establishment of the kingdom of glory will not take place until the second coming of Christ. When we tie these two quotations together, he's saying, I am taking any person on this planet who wishes to, every son of thunder, transform them by grace so that when we go to the pre-advent judgment that we will see this in this presentation, that setting up process happens first and then this stone kingdom continues. Let's take a look then at a pause and our pause and summarize slide. We're noticing that the focus of Daniel 2 is the stone kingdom that God has in five components and three phases. Focal point, three phases. Cut, pre-advent judgment. Smite, second coming. A thousand years later, consume. Third phase, fill the whole earth. Now, let's take a look at this two-part expression. The expression, the kingdom of God, is actually taking in consideration both parts. The kingdom of God is in the kingdom of grace first and the kingdom of glory second. The verses in the Bible that speak of the kingdom of God, that exact expression, are found in places like Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, where he says the kingdom of God, that exact expression, is within you. In other words, he begins the work of transformation here in this red line in your heart. Then, when that is seen in the books that we're going to look at a little bit later in the, in the most holy place, he identifies who looks like him in character. Two parts. Let's take a look at this. God's kingdom comes in two parts. When He created the world, He created us in His image, meaning submitted to uh, living for others' happiness, submitted to His will. When we fell, God could have just written us off. But instead, because He's a God of love, He set up this first part, this kingdom or workshop of grace that starts when we first needed it at the fall, ends at the second coming when we no longer need that sustaining grace. That symbol of that first part is that mountain. Then we move into the green on this line, this, the kingdom of glory, in three phases. Cut, pre-edment judgment, smite, second coming, 
fill the whole earth. Notice these two quotations as well. Great Controversy 347, paragraph 4. As, the, as used in the Bible, the expression, the kingdom of God, is employed to designate both the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace, the red band, the kingdom of glory, the blue band. Notice this next quotation. This is fascinating. The Bible and the spirit of prophecy are in total harmony. Desire of Ages 234, paragraph 4. As the message of Christ's first advent announced the kingdom of grace, our red arrow, so the message of his second advent announces the kingdom of his glory, our blue arrow. And the second message, like the first, is based on prophecies. It's interesting. When we take a look at this red arrow, we see a little symbol here for the cross. There were prophecies about this first advent, the nature of his birth, virgin birth, the place of his birth, Bethlehem, his crucifixion, all these things pointed to the first advent of this red line, the kingdom of grace. But also this kingdom of glory also has prophecies. Audible, all will see him, etc. But one point that is sometimes missed, and I had not seen until several years ago, is that just like the second coming, being visible is a prophecy of the second advent, also this cutting process that's going to focus on character, which we are moving towards. But when we're thinking of glory, let's put ourselves back into the mindset of the disciples. When they thought glory, they thought gold, power, etc. That's natural with the self-centered focus that we all have naturally. But when Moses asked God, show me your glory, did God show Moses his big bank account like Ezekiah did in 2 Chronicles 20? No. God showed Moses his character that allows him to have the quote gold part we typically associate with glory. Take a look at this. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when Moses asked, show me your glory, he says in the next chapter here, the Lord passed before Moses, showed him what? Not riches, but mercy, gracious, long-suffering. These are character characteristics. So when God speaks of glory, he's not talking about this gold glitter. He's talking about character. And so Moses, when he asked for God's glory, God showed him character of other-centeredness, self-denial. That's what he was looking at. Another passage, Micah 6, 8. He that showed me, he has shown me, O man, what is good. What the, doth the Lord require of you? To do justly, a characteristic. Love mercy, character quality. Walk humbly with your God. Again, Haggai 2, 7 through 9. I will shake all nations. The desire, capital D, of all nations shall come. The glory of this post captivity house will be more, more glorifi glorififul, that glorified than Solomon's that you're weeping about shown here because the glory, the character of Christ is going to be there. So we're seeing the selfless stone is showing us in this um, Daniel 2 material that there's a comparison between two images, totally opposite kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world are founded upon the principles of selfishness. The kingdom of God is founded upon the image 
and principles of selflessness. So what we're seeing then is that Daniel 2 is a clash and contrast between two images and two kingdoms. Selfishness, meaning those there, the king and their citizens, use others for their own good. And the great controversy, Satan is a prime example. In Daniel 2, Arioch. When Daniel came in with the message, what did he say? Oh, Daniel has found this? No, when he talked to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, I have found, I have found someone who can interpret it. He was taking that, that opportunity to aggrandize himself. And if we look at Daniel chapter 3, we see this gold image. They're all bowing on pain of death. This is a symbol of selfishness, self-exaltation, preservation, worship, will, and justification. But the other contrasting characteristic is selflessness that gives itself for others' good benefit. In the great controversy, Christ, in Daniel 2, Daniel. Think of when he was given the opportunity to aggrandize himself. He simply said, is there not a God in heaven? He gave the credit to whom it was due. Again, we notice the kingdom of glory down here in the red in Luke 12, verses 35 through 37. It says, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord Christ, when He comes, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that He, Christ, shall gird Himself and serve His servants. I mean, that's an awesome picture. He serves us here at the Lord's Supper, and then in the new earth, He continues to do what He's always done. He doesn't say, Peter, John, I'm tired after 6,000 years of working for humanity. I'll sit down, you serve me. No, He continues in our honeymoon in the, whole, in the, uh, the um, millennium to actually say, I will continue this work of serving others. Notice these two quotations. Welfare Ministry 59, paragraph 3. Not for himself, but for others did he labor. He was a servant of all. Same uh, Welfare Ministry 116, paragraph 2. Not a thread of selfishness was woven into the pattern he has left for his children to follow. This is a picture that Mrs. White says looks the most like what she, see, she remembers seeing Christ looking like. And that reminds me of Isaiah 53 too. He has no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. It's fascinating that the God of heaven who has all the power to make himself, when he comes to this earth, the most beautiful person that everybody just drawn to externally. He didn't want that. So he chose a form that if it looks like this, it's not ugly. It's not really that appealing. And so people, when they saw him, they must be drawn to his glory. That is his character. That's his point. So notice down here again in Matthew 10, 42 through 52, he is the servant of all. That's what he's doing here at the Lord's Supper. That's what he's doing back here in promise to Eve at the fall. So what we again have is a clash of contrast between two characters, two images, two kingdoms. God's selfless kingdom, denying self for the benefit of others, or Satan's kingdom that exalts, preserves, worships self, has self-will, has self-justification. Prince of Life heads this one. Prince of Darkness heads this one. Notice the different methods of warfare. God uses truth and love. Satan uses force, threats, flattery, and deceit. Which kingdom do you desire to be a citizen of? What ruler do you wish to be under the lordship of?
So let's pause again and think about what we just saw, what we've just seen. We're seeing that God invites everyone to be citizens of this red kingdom of grace, to take a son of thunder with serious defects, transform him back into God's, God's likeness, and then be in his heaven above. At this point, I want us to transition to Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Luke 19. And we will spend the bulk of the rest of this evening talking about these three points. This is rather fascinating. If we take a look, we notice on our board that Daniel 2 is the foundation for the entire chart. Daniel 2 has the head of gold, which is a kingdom, silver, brass, iron, feet and iron of clay, a stone, and a mountain. Each one of these is a kingdom. What we're noticing is that Daniel 7 comes along and adds more detail. So notice what happens. In Daniel chapter 7, we have a lion adding more detail to the kingdom of Babylon. Then we have the second symbol. We have a bear adding more detail to the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Next, we have the symbol of a leopard. Adding more detail to the third kingdom of Greece. Now let's pause here and grasp what we're seeing. What this is saying is that God, under uh, it, for da David, for Daniel, is showing that this kingdom is going to have two features worth adding to in Daniel chapter 7. The wings indicate how rapidly this one is going to conquer versus the other kingdoms. And eventually, in the life of the third kingdom of Greece, that kingdom will divide. The point is, every one of these symbols adds more detail to this. It's a pattern. Watch this. We then have the fourth symbol in Daniel, chapter 7, adding its detail to the fourth kingdom of iron. This is called the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7, verse 23. This one's called fourth. These are connected. If this is fourth, third, first, uh, second, first. Now watch this. We then see the next symbol right here. This one is the fifth symbol in Daniel 2, waiting for its additional detail in Daniel 7. And this is what we see. We see a little horn coming up out of this fifth symbol. Now, the focal point that we're wanting to notice is right here. This is how we begin to see how Daniel 2 and the plan of redemption tie inextricably together. If we notice, we have seen each one of these symbols receiving detail from these others here. Gold from the bear, uh, the lion. Silver, more detail from the bear. Brass, more detail from the leopard. The iron, the detail from the dragon. This feet and toes from this little horn. So the question is, which is the next symbol in Daniel 7 that's waiting for its, I mean Daniel 2, that's waiting for its accompanying detail in 7? The answer is the stone. What's the next event shown after Daniel 7, 8 about this little horn? Right here. Daniel chapter 7, 
verses 9 and 10. You see this? Just as this kingdom's four wings and four heads adds more detail to this, this pre-advent judgment adds detail to the stone. But pause for a moment. This stone comes in three phases. It's cut, it smites, consumes, and fills. So which of these three does this add detail to the stone? Let's take a look. If we look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 14, we see at the conclusion of the work of the investigative judgment, two or three actually characteristics of this kingdom. It says that God gives to His Son a kingdom that is everlasting, doesn't pass away, it is not destroyed. That should sound familiar to Daniel chapter 2's stone because if you'll notice in Daniel 2 verse 45, two of those are used again. This stone is not destroyed. This stone is forever. Notice Daniel 7:14, it's forever. Daniel 2:44, forever. Daniel 7:14, not destroyed. Daniel 2:44, not destroyed. This kingdom is being represented here. So when you look at the reporter's questions, where question is being answered here? Where does God the Father with His Son cut this kingdom of glory from this kingdom of grace? Answer here. So notice this. This is what's awesome as well in my own mind. We actually need to take a look at the titles of God the Father and God the Son. What we see is of interest that in Daniel 7, verses 9, 10, and then 13, he's called the Ancient of Days. Here, Christ is referred to as the Son of Man. What we're seeing is if we don't rush past the rich detail in this pre-advent judgment in which he is reviewing the lives of every subject in our red arrow, this mountain, we see that the titles themselves actually tell us that God loves you and me here. How so? I've done a study of the names and titles of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, and from my own study, I have found that God has given 395 titles in His name, of His name throughout the Bible, and for God the Son, 476. The point is this, since Daniel had such a rich number of titles to choose from, why did he choose the Ancient of Days for the Father? Why did he choose the, Ancient of, or the Son of Man for Christ? Well, if we pause here, we'll notice a real neat item. If you will take your Bible when you're watching this DVD, I would invite you to look at, at at least two passages. I was asking God, why did you use this one? And this is the answer that came to me. When it comes to Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, we actually see that God is from everlasting to everlasting and relative to knowledge, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. He's called the God of knowledge. 
He knows everything about everything about everything except one thing. According to James chapter 1, verse 13, he doesn't know experientially what it's like to be tempted. So when my name comes up in the pre-advent judgment, if his character was as he's accused, namely selfish, he would pick up my book, say, this is Jimmy. Yes, I see sins in here, but I would never have given to any of those temptations, no matter how strong the temptation or what the circumstances. I wouldn't, he shouldn't throw the book at him. But this right here tells us that because he is a God of love and with all his knowledge, he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. He then says in John 5, 22, because he loves me and he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted, he passes my name in my book to one like the Son of Man. That's awesome. His title tells me that in the, the, the holy place, the most holy place, I have nothing to fear for my John 3.16 God. He hasn't stopped loving me in the most holy place any less than he loves me in the courtyard. Symbolized by the altar burnt offering, symbolizing Calvary and that process there. But what about the Son of Man? If we look at the 476 titles that I have found, we can ask, there's shepherd, there's rock, there are any number of names that he could have used, and yet what he used, Son of Man. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Christ asked them, Whom do others say I, the Son of Man, am? So he identifies himself as the Son of Man. So again, the issue here in his title, not the shepherd, not the rock, but the Son of Man, in the context of the pre-advent judgment, their titles tell me that they are still loving me, John 3.16. When reviewing me, their titles say so. When he who is one who has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, I can trust that my verdict in their hands by these titles is in safe hands. They are the ones answering the reporter's questions of who. Who is doing this cutting? The two that love me. Where are they doing this? In the context of the pre-advent judgment. And we could look at more in Daniel chapter 7, but I'm going to uh, switch to a slide, another slide here, that I'd like us to take a look at. Since we are not afraid of the Father and the Son at Calvary, when they began their work of atonement together in our behalf, John 3.16, why should we be afraid of the Father or the Son in the most holy place as they work together to conclude their work of the atonement in our behalf? Now let's reread John 3.16 with those new titles. John 3.16 says, and we're putting these titles in, The Ancient of Days so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, one like unto the Son of Man, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is absolutely awesome. Let's return to that previous slide and let's take a look at Daniel chapter 8. This is also equally important and encouraging. We resume our prophetic sweep, again noticing what the Spirit of Prophecy says in Testimonies to Ministers 1.14, when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood Believers will have an entirely different religious experience. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with the character 
that all must and can uh, develop in order to receive the, ble- the reward of the pure in heart. So we go to Daniel chapter 8, and now we're anticipating not just more details and dates. We're looking at how this new item not only gives contributions to this, but most specifically to character formation that will be inspected and can pass. Watch this. Babylon is not mentioned. The ram is mentioned, which gives more detail to the bear, to the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Then we have a ram. And that ram is symbolizing, a he-goat is symbolizing or adding detail to the leopard to this third kingdom of Greece. Then the next item we see is a little horn. Which symbolizes Rome. So here we have second, third, fourth being added to. Then we have the fifth one being added to right here. And you'll notice that it's interesting if you read Daniel chapter 8, he is attacking what? He's attacking the sanctuary that I am more and more now referring to the heavenly sanctuary of strength. We get that sanctuary of strength terminology from the Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, specifically the King James Version. Why would the devil want to bother with the sanctuary? Because he knows that in the courtyard, any person, and we're just going to use the sons of thunder, James and John, any person in on earth can be pardoned in the sanctuary of strength, in the courtyard. They can then be, have their, their character reconstructed in the most holy place of the, excuse me, the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary of strength, and then they will be inspected, and if built according to the pattern Jesus Christ, they will pass the inspection of the Ancient of Days, the Father and the Son here as they are cutting this stone mountain, a stone kingdom of glory from this stone kingdom of grace. That's why he is attacking this. But the point is, notice, that we have here this symbol, adding detail here, this one here, this one here, and this one here. So what is the next symbol? That is being that's waiting for its additional detail in eight. Right here. Now let's pause here and think about what we're seeing. This says in Daniel eight fourteen, under two thousand three hundred days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This black line represents the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary of strength. It begins 1844, concludes close of probation. What is interesting is Daniel 8:14, the cleansing of the sanctuary, that is Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement language. But notice here, if we're going back to that reporter's question, where is God 
cutting this stone kingdom of glory from the mountain kingdom of grace. He's doing so, according to Daniel 7, in the context of judgment with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, and in Daniel 8, more specifically, in the most holy place, because the cleansing of the sanctuary does not happen in the courtyard. It doesn't happen in the holy place. It happens in the most holy place. So this brings up three mosts holies. Number one, there is a most holy location. There is a most holy law. And there is a most holy day. Now let's pause and think about this for a moment. Which of the kingdoms in these symbols, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Europe, bothered to go into the most holy precincts of their God's temple in front of their God's most holy law on their God's most holy day to set up their kingdom? Not one. Only the God of heaven bothers to go into this holy precinct to set up his kingdom. But let's add another dimension to this. Since only the holy can go into this most holy place, and this is the place he is setting up his kingdom that will last forever, not pass away, not be destroyed, in the context of judgment, what kind of a kingdom is he setting up? A holy nation. That is Old Testament. That is New Testament. For the Old Testament references, we have Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, holy nation. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, holy nation. Meaning more specifically, looking like Christ, and more specifically, living for others and submitting to God. This is the way we were created for fellowship. We fell from that. We became self-centered, rebellious. We lost this. God has a plan in His heavenly sanctuary of strength to pardon us and recreate in us other-centeredness, submission to God. He then inspects this over here in the pre-advent judgment in the most holy place. And those persons who have cooperated with God will pass that inspection. That should give tremendous encouragement to every person. Now what I want to do is transition to our last section and I really, really enjoy this section, the, again, the way it highlights the character of God. This will answer several questions, and incidentally, if you wanted more detail on this, you could go on your chart, panel C, go to the bottom, and you will see, in summary, the various things that we're talking about. Daniel 7, here, 8, here, Luke 19, which we're going to look at now. And it all asks the questions of who, when, where, why, the reporter's questions. Now watch this. This is fascinating. If we take a look at Daniel, Luke chapter 19 and verse 12, we notice this pattern. We see that Christ says of himself, there was a certain nobleman referring to himself. He went to a far country, meaning heaven, to receive a kingdom and to return. If those who criticize the pre-advent judgment here understood that sequence here went, receive a kingdom and return, they would have nothing to say against this. It's that simple. Watch this. Let's ask several questions as we are 
bringing this to a conclusion toward character Christ-likeness. Let's think about this. We can ask the following questions. Number one, when, according to Christ's own testimony, did he go to receive his kingdom? He went at his ascension. You can find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. When does he receive this kingdom? He receives it after he went, A.D. 31, and before he returns. Next question, where does our heavenly Savior go? If we look at Acts 1, 11, he went to heaven. He went to God's right hand, Mark 16, verse 19. He went to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. He went to the heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews 8.1 and 2, Daniel 11.31, King James Version, Revelation 11.9, Revelation 15.5, Revelation 16.17. He went into the holy place here to reconstruct our character and then move into the most holy place seen here in Daniel 8, the cleansing of the sanctuary, pre-advent judgment, Daniel 7, or Daniel foundational chapter, the stone cut from the mountain. All these are talking about the same thing, underscoring the issue of inspection. But this is the part that's, that's rather interesting as well. What does our heavenly Savior go to heaven as? He goes at least as four things. He goes to heaven as our mediator. That's Hebrews 9.15. He goes as our intercessor. Hebrews 7.25. He goes as our king of grace. Hebrews 4.16. For the king of grace would sit on a throne of grace mentioned in that verse. But also particularly of interest is the builder of a new temple. Zechariah chapter 6.13 talks about Christ as being a builder of a temple. And this is what's fascinating. We'll go back to this in a moment. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it says, Speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, talking about Christ, he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, referring to Christ, sit upon the throne as priest, as king. So we see here Christ is, is seen going to heaven into the sanctuary of strength to do what? To pardon whoever wishes to come, reconstruct their character, inspect it, and it will pass. I'd like us to consider, I'll come back to this in a moment, but I want us to consider a few other points and we'll come back to this uh, uh, portion here. Think of this. He, Christ went to heaven according to this parable. Where? To the most holy place first, uh, the holy place first, then the most holy place. He went to receive. Which kingdom? Well, the, the, the disciples were not looking for a Messiah who would suffer and die. They were looking for a temporal kingdom. In fact, they could not tolerate the thought of their suffering servant, Messiah. So when he's going to receive a kingdom, he's not, the disciples not wanting this kingdom 
where the Messiah is one who gives his life, they're looking for the kingdom of glory. They weren't ready for that. They had to have a change of character. But the point is that he went to receive the kingdom of glory and to return. In Daniel 7, verse 14, he actually receives that kingdom. And that kingdom is the same as a stone. So we know very clearly that the kingdom he's going to receive is the stone kingdom right there. Also, we see that the Father is the one giving God the Son his kingdom. Daniel 7, 14. He receives it in heaven at the conclusion of the close of probation. If you want a spirit of prophecy quotation for that, you can look at Great Controversy 480, paragraph 0. She says that he receives this kingdom, quoting Daniel 7.14, at the conclusion of the close of probation right here. So I want to return back to this uh, page here, and I want us to think about this as we're wrapping this up, the Daniel 2 section, before we move into the next section, the plan of redemption. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13 mentions that the Messiah is going to build a temple. But if we think about this, there are six temples in the Bible. First one is Moses. Christ didn't build that one. The Israelites did, and it's dismantled. The second one is Solomon's temple. That was not built by Christ. It was built by Solomon's, uh, the Israelites in Solomon's day. That was destroyed. The one that the exiles created or, or, or built, that's not the one he... he um, built. The Father set up this sanctuary, so it's not talking about this one. And the sixth one is the Father and the Son, according to Revelation 21, 22. It says that they are the temple. So the only other temple that He, the Messiah, as a mediator, as an intercessor, as a King of Grace, as a builder, would build is people. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. He's saying, you are the temple of God. Do you not see that each one of us, as a stone that Paul or Peter mentions, needs to be pardoned, then reconstructed, then inspected, and then we are a part of this kingdom that fills the whole earth? Not Nebuchadnezzar's, not Medo-Persia's, not Greece, not Rome, not Europe, but people once again in Christ's image. Again, the character of Christ seems, stands forward. Three other quotations that I would like us to think about. This one is from, from the heart. This is the 2011 quote, um, Ellen White devotional. Here she says on page 86, paragraph 1, Christ came to the world to be a reconstructor of character. That's what he's doing. Reconstructing our character back into his likeness. In Prophets and Kings, page 36, paragraph 1, Mrs. White is describing the absolute beauty of the kingdom, I mean the, um, the temple, that, that uh, Solomon's temple, and she goes by saying this. She says, garnished with precious stones, surrounded by spacious courts with magnificent approaches and lined with carved cedar and burnished gold. The temple structure, she's talking about the physical structure, with its broided hangings and rich furnishings, notice this, was a fit emblem of the living church of God on earth, which through the ages, here we have this red line here, the kingdom of grace, through the ages has been building after the divine pattern, which the materials have been likened to gold, precious silver, stones, polished after the similitude of a palace. Of this spiritual temple, Christ is the chief cornerstone in whom 
all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. He is taking any person who wishes every son of thunder and polishes them, building them towards his likeness. That's what he's doing right there. And this last quotation that I want us to take a look at in this, this part is this one. This is from Manuscript Releases, Volume 3, page 19, paragraph 3. She says, angels and archangels, and that's interesting. She's saying that there are more than one archangel. There's, there's more. Wonder at the great plan of redemption. They admire and love the Father and the Son as they behold the mercy and love of God. There is no feeling of jealousy as this new temple, renewed in the image of Christ, is presented in its loveliness to stand around the throne of God. Here she's clearly referring to the temple that God is interested in is not metals. It's not precious stones. He's talking about people that he created in the beginning like himself, living for others, submitted to God for face-to-face -face communion. We fell from that. We became self-centered, rebellious, and lost this. He said, I have a plan by which I can pardon you in my heavenly sanctuary of strength, reconstruct you into selfless, other-centered, submitted people so that in the new earth you can live face-to-face -face with me. That's the focus of Daniel chapter 2, not just a list of medals and their respective dates. So as we wrap this up, I would like to take us to our last slide in this presentation. and bring this in for a landing before we launch into the plan of redemption of how that actual character of Christ can be reproduced in us. Think of this quote that we have here. Education, page 154, paragraph 3, quote, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals in the same way with all who serve him. Now notice the part in red. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. If we look at Revelation 12, uh, 12 verse 11, I have that as one. It should be Revelation 12, 11. We see the same thing. And they overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Christ and his followers, just like it says here, have the privilege of, number one, disproving the devil's claim. But what's the devil's claim? It's not possible to have the character of Christ. And every person throughout time who accepts Christ is showing in this red line the thief on the cross, the little maid with Naaman, sons of thunder, they are showing, Job included, that it is possible to be pardoned by our mediator, be reconstructed in his image, and every time they, God's people, including Christ, do selfless acts, they are disproving the devil's claims in the broader sense of the great controversy and giving to God the ability in the pre-advent judgment when His name is on trial. For re Notice in Revelation 14, 
verse 7, it says, the hour of God's judgment is come. His character is on trial. That when all the universe says, yes, the verdict is in, God's selfless character is possible. God's character is the only one safe to be in the, the, uh, the sovereign's heart that sits on the throne of the universe and in the citizens. Then they say, oh, look at all these people, Job, you, me, etc. Each one of us has the privilege of disproving the devil so that our king of this mountain kingdom can then destroy this kingdom at last. And so by having the character of Christ, it is possible for each one of us to be um, to, to uh, actually hasten the this, this soon coming of Christ. So in conclusion, what I like to, to do for each one of us is to repeat that quotation and then think of, of, of this transition, and that is this. We started with the understanding that in Testimonies to Ministers 114, when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience they will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with the character that all must, meaning all can, develop to be the recipients of the reward of the pure in heart. So my challenge to each one of us is this. Let's each one ask God, show me a more beautiful revelation of your character so that by that, I can not only be like you, I can draw other people to you, but help destroy the devil in his attempt in this great controversy to discredit God. This is my prayer for each one of you, and by God's grace, let's meet on the other shore. And in the next section, we're going to actually look at the plan of redemption to see how we can have that character. God bless. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.